Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number six, an Old Testament survey from Abraham to modern Israel. At this point in our Old Testament survey, we have arrived at the year of the kings of Israel. Kings Saul and David and now Solomon have come and gone. It's about 920 B.C. Now calling this the era of the kings doesn't mean that it was known as that to the Israelites of that day. Because eras are just human designated historical periods that bear unique characteristics that seem important and impactful to us. And they're spoken of only in retrospect. They're defined by historians long after those eras are over. So before the era of the kings was what was known as the era of the judges. And perhaps the primary difference between these two eras is that judges were established by the Lord to deliver and or govern only certain of the twelve Israelite tribes. But not all of them. That is, a judge was raised up to deal only with a dire situation. A situation that concerned his or her own tribe. And then that judge, that shofet, had no serious thought of reorganizing all of Israelite society into a unified nation of all 12 tribes. Why is that? Because the foundational principle of a tribal society is that the most dominant tribe in a region becomes the ruling tribe. And therefore, any tribal leader, whether that leader is a tribal prince or that he's a judge, has the duty to do his or her best to bring their own tribe to dominance, which usually involves helping to diminish the other regional tribes. In other words, it was a zero-sum game. But after nearly three centuries of tribal judges, aggressive Gentile neighbors more and more saw the 12 Israelite tribes as generally a related entity. And so their attacks upon various tribal territories expanded with the Philistines leading the way. But a defining moment arrived that set Israel on new course when just before 1040 B.C., Various Israelite tribal leaders agreed that not that only with their combined military forces could they ever hope to stave off the Philistines and their other enemies, but still they couldn't tolerate the concept of having a single leader ruling over all 12 tribes. This combined Hebrew force met in a great battle not far from Jaffa, and they were soundly defeated. The consequence of that humiliation led the tribal leaders to a reluctant change of heart. And now they concluded that to survive, they would have to do the heretofore unthinkable. Choose a single leader to govern them all. The highly respected prophet Samuel 
was put in charge of finding the right man for the job. He chose and installed Saul of Benjamin. And from a historian's viewpoint, this was the moment of transition from an era of tribal judges to an era of national kings. Now Saul never united the tribes into a sovereign nation as was hoped for. The old traditional alliances of the two southern tribes versus the ten northern tribes continued. And there was constant discomfort, there was distrust among the twelve tribal chieftains towards this new office of king. And Saul was eventually killed in battle and, and momentarily replaced by his surviving son, Ishbosheth. However, this situation was short lived. Ishbosheth ruled in name only and only over some of the northern tribes. In response, the southern two tribes installed David as their king. But within seven years, David overcame objections of the northern tribes and he created the first fully united, fully sovereign nation of Israel. As David aged, he had several sons by a number of women. And naturally a number of them wanted to succeed their father when the time came. Therefore Absalom and Solomon became the chief rivals for the throne. And when Absalom sensed that his father would not choose him, he conducted a coup. And his elderly father David fled, but later regrouped, retook his throne with Absalom being killed in the process. Now near his death, David, through the prophet Nathan's urging, announced that Solomon would follow him. So David and Solomon co-ruled for a couple of years until David died. Solomon turned Israel into a regional powerhouse. He made coalitions with hundreds of small kingdoms. But he turned the Israelite people against him when he overspent and he ordered forced labor of Hebrews and destructively high taxes in order to continue on with his grandiose plans. By the time of his death, the northern tribes were seething in anger. And only the southern tribes truly missed him. Because, after all, <clears throat> Solomon was of the tribe of Judah. But even worse, Solomon had become tolerant paganism and even somewhat participated in pagan rituals in the name of peace and prosperity. Sound familiar? He died in 925 BC and things fell apart rapidly. Well Rehoboam, one of Solomon's sons, became king following his father's death. Spoiled and pampered from the moment of his birth, he was as vain as his father, but unlike his father, he was utterly inept. In no time he alienated many of the powerful tribal elders and he had a flea for his life. Within three years of Shlomo's, Solomon's death, Rehoboam's incompetence drove Israel to become a divided nation. The tribe of Yehuda 
Judah, which by now had absorbed the tribe of Benjamin, controlled the south. The ten other tribes shared the north, but the tribe of Ephraim had become the largest and thus the dominant tribe. It is interesting to note that after centuries of typical tribal warfare and an ebb and flow of power among the twelve tribes of Israel, the two that eventually dominated and absorbed the other ten were Ephraim and Judah. Hundreds of years earlier, as Israel stood on the edge of the land of Canaan ready to enter, ready to inherit this land so long promised to them, Moses had ordered that each of the twelve tribes were to choose a single man to form a group to go and spy on the Canaanite people to report back what they saw. Ten of those spies focused on this fearful challenge and reported it would be suicide to confront these Canaanite people. The men, Joshua and Caleb, from the tribes of Judah and Ephraim, however, reported that Israel should stand on God's promise of victory and go forth in faith and courage. Now, all this time later, it was those two tribes which lorded over all the other ten. Coincidence? Hardly. Well, the former nation of Israel now consisted of two nations, or better, two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Ephraim Israel. The southern kingdom was called Yehuda, Judah. Each would choose distinctively different directions in their development. Now Jeroboam was the son of an elder of a powerful tribe of Ephraim. And having fled to Egypt a few years earlier after a failed attempt to wrest power from King Solomon, Jeroboam returned at this opportune moment of national weakness and he became king over the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, Ephraim Israel. Even though residing in Egypt for just a few years, he had by now largely forsaken Yahweh worship and he learned to worship the Egyptian gods. He turned the cities of Dan and Bethel into cult cities. He instituted calf worship, which was actually the worship of the Egyptian Apis bull. The people embraced the change. Big mistake. God sent a prophet to inform Jeroboam that Israel would be taken out of the land and scattered if its idolatry continued some 200 years into the future with that warning unheeded that's exactly what happened when Jeroboam died and his son was murdered Basha became king of Ephraim Israel he reigned for 25 years all the while warring with Judah Basha died his son ruled less than two years before he was killed while he was in a drunken stupor by a general who wanted to be the king so it went Ephraim Israel had begun to slide down the slippery slope that the prophets had warned them about. Ephraim Israel found itself in a strategic pincers now between the 
powerful Arameans that were controlling its northern border and Judah that was chipping away at its southern border. Even the hated Philistines had lined up with Judah against Ephraim Israel. Worse, Judah and the Arameans had formed, at least temporarily, an alliance against Ephraim Israel. What's that old proverb? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Weak kings, assassination plots, subversions, and this growing love for their neighbors' paganism all served to turn Ephraim Israel's government into a shambles. Who was actually king? Eventually, a military field commander named Omri defeated other rivals to the throne of Ephraim Israel in a battle, and he took over. He built a city on a hill in central Israel for his capital. He named it Shomron, Samaria. And he ruled from there for about a dozen years. His new capital was designed as a military stronghold. It was built on a solitary hill some 300 feet high that afforded the defenders a view westward all the way to the Mediterranean. A local spring supplied ample water. The city walls were made of solid limestone blocks constructed to a thickness of 15 feet at the narrowest point to as much as 30 feet in areas Omri must have felt were the most important. Before he died, he stopped the warring with Judah. He reestablished some control over the trade routes and brought a few years of stability to the northern kingdom. Yet God condemned him for his ways and Omri was considered an evil king by the people. Now Omri, he was succeeded by his daughter-in-law, the infamous Jezebel. And she set up Baal worship in Samaria. The ten northern tribes had been heavily influenced by the Canaanites' pagan practices, and now they easily accepted worshiping both Baal and Yahweh. God responded, uh, responded to this atrocity with a drought, the severe lack of rain, as as a punishment upon the northern kingdom had been foretold and actually brought about in many ways by the prophet Eliao, Elijah. Famine and starvation set in. At the command of Queen Jezebel, 400 of her priests of Baal met on Mount Carmel to offer a sacrifice to Baal for rain. Elijah, who was an unwelcome adversary, well he shows up And he challenges Jezebel's pagan priests to light their altar fire supernaturally. Well, all their dancing and yelling and sacrificing is futile. Near Baal's sacrificial altar, however, is an ancient and an abandoned altar to Yehovah that had been torn down when Jezebel declared Baal to be the highest god of the kingdom. Elijah and his associates rebuilt that stone altar They put a bull on it and they called for God to rain fire down upon it and burn up that sacrificial animal. God does. And the people cheer as Eliao, Elijah, then hauls off these pagan priests of Jezebel's to a riverbed and kills them all. Then he goes back up the hill. He prays for rain. God grants it. Now Queen Jezebel 
wasn't very impressed about all this. And so she threatened Elijah for killing her priests. He fled. And over the next several years, a veritable orgy of blood took the lives of several Israelite kings and those who sought power. Queen Jezebel herself was thrown from a window and splattered on a street below. Well, 400 years have passed now since Joshua led the Israelites across the Jordan River and they conquered Canaan. A few hundred miles to the north now of Ephraim, Israel, God was readying a growing power of Syria to use as a vehicle with which to wreak His holy judgment upon Ephraim, Israel. Jehu is the new king of Ephraim, Israel, and within a year, he will bow down in submission before the pagan king of Assyria. King Jehu, then his descendants, ruled Ephraim, Israel for almost a century, but under the yoke of Assyria. Well, the last of Jehu's line, Jeroboam II, well, he took advantage of a momentary period of Assyrian weakness, and together with King Uzziah of Judah, retook some lost territory, reestablished several trade routes, and they brought 40 years of prosperity to the land. The prophet Amos warned King Jeroboam II that the stench of his continuing idolatry, mistreatment of the Israelite people, was going to lead to destruction of the northern kingdom of Ephraim Israel. Those closest to the king became very wealthy. But of course at the expense of the peasants. Idol worship ran rampant. Well, in 746 B.C., King Jeroboam II dies. The northern kingdom becomes unstable. A former Assyrian general by the name of Tiglath-Pileser III, he takes the throne of Assyria. He begins to build an empire. And in Greece... Homer has finished writing the legends of the Trojan War and its aftermath in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Olympia hosts the first Olympic Games. Italy, in Italy, the city of Rome is founded. Ephraim, Israel, and Judah are now starkly different nations. The northern kingdom is so dominated by the tribe of Ephraim that the people living there now call their nation Ephraim, not Israel. They consider themselves Ephraimites rather than Israelites. Some ancient manuscripts reintroduce the word Israel and make the nation of Ephraim into Ephraim Israel, probably for the sake of clarity. Oddly, today's biblical translations have done the opposite by erroneously referring to the northern kingdom as simply Israel instead of Ephraim or Ephraim Israel. This rather sloppy scholarship has caused significant confusion in our modern understanding of biblical times and it has really clouded the meaning of some very key end times prophecies. Now, Ephraim, Israel's leaders, easily adopted, they sought after their pagan neighbor's ways. The Nimrod 
Mesopotamian gods of old were never far from the Ephraimites' minds. And, and they found them, these gods very comfortable and familiar. Judah, though hardly pure, they were more determined to stay true to the God of Israel. Well, the powerful nation of Assyria, by the way, that's called Iraq in our day, was now in an imperialistic frenzy. They were conquering, they were soaking up nations at an alarming rate. Kingdom builders and conquerors up to this time, you see, they were usually after one thing, tribute. They wanted taxes, they wanted booty from the conquered. They wanted a steady source of income. So traditionally in the past, the conqueror's goal was not necessarily to add new territory to their own, but rather to simply lord over a number of otherwise sovereign nations for the purpose of adding wealth and power to this conquering nation. Almost always that meant leaving the conquered nation's governments, their social structures intact, although subservient. And that was so that these economies didn't suffer and thereby just reduce the amount of tribute that they could extract. However, this Syrian method and aims were quite different. They wanted to annex the conquered territories. That is, Assyria wanted to, wanted to greatly expand their national borders. They wanted to own the lands and the peoples that they conquered. They wanted to create a greater Assyria. They also required each conquered people to add manpower to the growing Assyrian army. And after the Assyrians defeated an enemy, they would garrison troops there to hold the land. Nations that resisted their occupation too strongly, like Ephraim Israel did, well, they saw their cities burned and their people were deported to distant lands en masse. And they were then replaced with people from another conquered nation. See, this mass population exchange procedure was calculated to weaken the social fabric of the defeated nations. And it was hoped that in turn this would produce more cooperation and a lot less chance for rebellion. And of course, it typically resulted in full assimilation of that conquered nation's citizens into a common Assyrian culture. Well, after King Jeroboam II's death, his son, Zechariah, ruled Ephraim Israel for just a few months. And then during the next ten years, no fewer than five kings would rule. Every one of them was a disaster serving only themselves and whatever new manner of debauchery and idolatry suited them. Each one of them was murdered by the one to follow. Assyria. They were tired of the constant rebellious attitude of these stiff-necked Hebrews. They were tired of all this government instability. And in the difficulty of attracting the agreed-to tribute from Ephraim's rulers, well, they finally attacked the capital city and the center of Ephraim Israel's pagan worship, Samaria. The grand city with its astonishingly thick walls was very well fortified. It held up under the Assyrian siege for almost three years. Now siege warfare was a common practice. 
since the invention of walled cities. It was a simple strategy. You surround the city, you cut off food and water supplies, nobody gets in or out. So the inhabitants, well, they either give up or they eventually starve to death or they die of disease. Depending on the invader, surrender could mean being put to the sword. It wasn't the best of choices, that's for sure. Anyway, Samaria finally fell to the um, Assyrian army in 722 BC. It was the end of the nation of Ephraim Israel. And it was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. During a five year period prior to the fall of Samaria, the Assyrians had decimated Ephraim Israel to the point that all that remained of the northern kingdom was the 20 acre capital city of Samaria and then just a few square miles of hills and fields that led up to it. The bulk of Ephraim Israel's residents had, even before the fall of Samaria, been removed. And true to their methods, the Assyrians deported the Ephraimites. They scattered them throughout the 120 conquered nations that formed their empire. The Ephraimites, generally representing 10 of the original 12 tribes, were then absorbed into all the various cultures and races of the many Assyrian provinces to the point that within several generations few could trace their family history back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The land itself, the northern kingdom, had become just another of the many provinces of Assyria occupied by peoples of several other conquered nations that had been moved in to repopulate the land. Egypt would be Assyria's next target. And all that stood in the way of their plan to move on to Egypt was Judah. Now the people of Judah, despite the, the, the litany of kings who ruled them that were, that were evil in God's eyes, had stayed relatively pure in Jehovah worship. The hills and the mountains that provided a natural territorial boundary between Ephraim, Israel, and Judah also served to kind of isolate Judah from outside influence. King David's descendants continue to reign. It's about this time that the tribal people of Yehuda began to be called Yehud, Jews. Now it's now key to understand and carefully consider that from this point forward in Israel's history for all practical purposes the only identifiable remnant of the people from the original 12 tribes of Israel who called themselves Israelites were the Jews. And the Jews consisted only of the tribe of Yehuda, Judah and the tribe it absorbed, Benjamin. Now the Levites, who never were granted territory within the Holy Lands, but lived in designated cities among all the twelve tribes, they continued to exist as those who were set apart to serve God as his priests. But they seem by now to consider themselves as affiliated with Judah which is all that remained of Israel. And therefore they were regularly 
referred to as Jews. Over the centuries, no matter what culture, what nation, what religion, the precise meaning of words, vocabulary, has steadily evolved. Therefore, what these words meant to communicate also change. So although we have learned that technically a Levite is a person who is from the Israelite tribe of Levi, and conversely, a Jew is a person who is from the Israelite tribe of Judah, at the point in history at which we've arrived, the words Levite and Jew communicated something slightly different than what they did only a few decades earlier. To the minds of the remnant of Israel, a Levite was just a subgroup now of people called Jews. A Levite would, to a Gentile, identify himself as a Jew because that description was enough to properly communicate what he was. But to a Jew, a Levite would identify himself as a Levite. Because being a Levite represented a certain status. A status is that set-apart group of Hebrews who performed the all-important priestly duties that only Levites could perform. Now the Ephraimites, who were that conglomerate representing the ten other original tribes, are now gone. Their genes are thoroughly mixed with a multitude of other nationalities and races and cultures, all Gentile, of course. In other words, a significant portion of the Ephraimites had become Gentiles, losing their Hebrew identity and any connection to the land. God had granted them their desire to become just like their neighbors, And their neighbors were, of course, Gentiles. Interestingly, God refers to these former Ephraimites as a lo-ami, a non-people. Every scholarly attempt to discover what's become of these ten tribes had led to nothing until relatively recently. It's now certain that remnants of these ten tribes retained a memory of their Israelite family roots. They've reconstituted their tribal communities and many of them are pushing to rejoin their Jewish brothers in the reborn nation of Israel. So, while the vast majority of the Ephraimites blended their genes with Gentiles, and therefore became Gentiles themselves. A few stayed separate. They stubbornly held on to their heritage. And they are alive and well today. Many thousands have migrated to Israel just within the past few years. Well, backing up a little bit. About five years prior to the Assyrians conquering the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel, King Ahaz of Judah, that southern kingdom, made a peace treaty with the Assyrians while he still had a little bit of bargaining power. King Ahaz was wined and dined and bedazzled with the power of the Assyrians in their culture, and he brought back with him an appetite for their pagan ways. And history shows no proof 
that the Assyrians forced their gods on anybody. King Ahaz willingly embraced their pagan ways. And then he tried to foist them onto his Jewish subjects. Well, the book of Chronicles tells us that King Ahaz of Judah openly worshipped the Aramean god, a horror to the Jews that he governed. The Assyrians and the Arameans had by now, through treaty, integrated themselves so closely to one another as to be nearly indistinguishable cultures. The Aramean language, quickly becoming the primary language of the region, is now introduced into Judah. King Ahaz dies in 715 BC and his son, Hezekiah, ascends to the throne. He doesn't have his father's appetite for foreigners or their pagan gods. The prophet Yeshayahu, Isaiah, who began his ministry during King Ahaz's reign, had been ignored by the former king in his court. But the new king, Hezekiah, he was more inclined to listen to him. And so he set about to ridding Judah of all this paganism that his father had promoted. Yet, he had to be careful because his father had pledged loyalty to the then king of Assyria, Tiglath Pilas III, in order to avoid the same fate as Ephraim Israel had suffered. To move too fast would have meant a violent confrontation with a mighty Assyrian army that could have crushed him like an over-ripened grape. Simply holding on to an empire proved to be a never-ending business. The Assyrians were regularly fighting rebellion from several of their conquered provinces simultaneously. The Philistines, also under Assyria's thumb, broke out into anti-Assyrian riots. Other oppressed nations, they took notice of this. And so they joined with the Philistines in rebellion. The people of Judah, they thought it'd make sense join these rebels. But Isaiah thought otherwise. He convinced King Hezekiah to sit this one out. And although Hezekiah showed his sympathy for his neighbor's cause, he remained officially aloof. It turned out that Yeshayahu, Isaiah was right. Those rebellions failed. And the retributions were terrible. But then in 705 BC, Sargon the latest Assyrian king, he died suddenly. The entire empire used his death and subsequent vacuum and leadership as a call to break the hold that Assyria had over them. This time, Judah joined in the rebellion, but not before King Hezekiah spent a lot of money and manpower to strengthen Jerusalem's defenses in preparation for what he knew was going to be a battle for Judah's existence. The thick walls were repaired. Turrets were erected. Houses that might be too near the perimeter of the wall, they were torn down. And in a remarkable engineering feat that was actually only rediscovered in 1880, a tunnel was bored through sheer rock to access the city's sole water supply over 500 yards in length. This secret water tunnel routed life-sustaining liquid from its source, the Gihon Spring, outside the massive walls of Jerusalem to the pool of Siloam that was located safely inside the city walls. Ingeniously, somehow, 
They managed to construct the mouth of this tunnel entrance below the water line of the exposed spring so its existence was hidden from the invaders. A lot of you have walked through that tunnel, I think. I know I've led a few of you. Now the new Assyrian king, Sennacherib, he wasted no time in reestablishing control within his empire. One by one, he squashed each rebel province moving from north to south. The Assyrian army finally came to Judah. But they first attacked the city of Lachish. Hundreds of inhabitants were butchered as the high walls were battered down and then the well-trained and battle-hardened Assyrian troops poured into the city. Then they moved on to Jerusalem. But there, the thick walls held. The battle raged on and on. Then suddenly, unexpectedly, it stopped. And the Bible tells us that an angel of the Lord smote the Assyrian army and killed 185,000 troops overnight. Sennacherib withdrew. He went back to Assyria, the holy city still intact. Isaiah had prophesied that the holy city would not fall to the Assyrians. Well, in 687 B.C., King Hezekiah died. His son, Manasseh, at the age of only 12 years, became king of Judah. He ruled for about 50 years as arguably the most hated king in the history of Judah. Assyria was now at the height of its power, and King Manasseh relished his close relationship that he'd built with him. Not only did he worship their pagan gods, he even outlawed the worship of the God of Israel, and he murdered anybody who disobeyed. The temple of Solomon became the center of all sorts of cult practices, including child sacrifice, even fertility rites that involved ceremonial prostitution. <laughs> Images of gods were erected, they were worshipped. Judah was at peace with this powerful ally of theirs, and so now the doorway to Egypt was opened for Assyria, and they took advantage. Assyria successfully invaded Egypt in 663 BC. About 10 years later, Egypt escaped the grip of her conquer, and for whatever reason, Assyria didn't show much interest in this. Perhaps Egypt was just too far, just too far away from the Assyrian seat of government to control. Or maybe, as with all imperialistic cultures, their appetite for war had just diminished. Well, a few years later, the nation of Babylonia rebelled against Assyria and they fairly easily regained their independence. Media, another of the scores of vassal states under Syria's rule, they formed an alliance with the Babylonians and together they attacked their former conqueror in hopes of taking over their empire. In 612 BC the allies attacked Nineveh, the crown jewel of the Assyrian empire and they leveled it. Babylonia is about to become the next world power. Now while the Assyrians were busy trying to survive, the Babylonians were building their power up into uh, the northern part of, the, of their area. So King Josiah of Judah now had a brief window of opportunity to 
cleanse the land of pagan influence while these two bullies of the region were focused elsewhere. A century has gone by since Ephraim Israel ceased to exist and its idol-worshipping people were cast into the air and dispersed like so much chaff in a heavy wind. King Josiah of Judah sensed that God was going to allow the Jews to suffer that same fate that same fate as the northern tribes did if the Jews didn't change their ways. His intuition was proved correct because a worker busy restoring that crumbling temple stumbled upon an ancient scroll. The worker took that scroll to a scribe. He took it to the king and the king had him read it. In that scroll were the words of Moses. Moses was speaking as he stood in Moab looking across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And the scroll began, I am the Lord your God that brought you out of Egypt. And it went on, You shall have no other gods before me. It was a reminder of their Hebrew heritage, the deliverance from the Egyptian masters, what Jehovah expected of them, but it was more. Because what followed that was then a system of codes and laws. Revere only the Lord your God. Worship Him alone. Tear down their altars. Cut down the images of their gods. Take care not to sacrifice your burnt offerings any place you like. Only in the place which the Lord will choose. Teachings, commandments concerning festivals, eating, taxation, loaning money, crime and punishment, So much more was all laid out. But what really made King Josiah fall on his knees and tear his clothes in anguish, cry out in fear, was this dire warning that if they failed to follow these laws, destruction was going to follow. So hastily, King Josiah gathered all the elders of Judah and he read them the scroll. Changes were enacted immediately. The Torah had been rediscovered. Idolatry became a crime punishable by death. Throughout Judah, all the pagan altars and images were destroyed. The only acceptable place of worship and sacrifice once again became the temple in Jerusalem. Reform, true revival, swept over Judah and the Jewish people. A new relationship formed between God and His remnant of people, the Jews, The relationship moved from this this mystical, magical arena to the rational, to the tangible. God lives in heaven. He doesn't live in a temple. It's only His spiritual essence, His glory, His Shekinah that resides on earth. Yehovah loves mankind. Mankind is to love God. Shabbat, the Sabbath. It's not so God can rest. It's so mankind can rest. So man can renew physically, spiritually. God's people, they're to be holy. They're to stay separate from the pagan nations in their perverted ways. Man is to strive for peace, humility, love, kindness to one another. The Jews are to teach each new generation to love God's laws and doctrines and to obey them. Well, during this of great revival in Judah, a curious 
regional alliance was formed. The Assyrians, desperately trying to continue to hang on to their empire, and the Egyptians, who were most alarmed at this new and menacing 800-pound gorilla called Babylonia, put aside all their differences and they joined forces. And in a decisive battle that would change the balance of power for years to come, the new allies fought together against Babylon. Egypt's armies were defeated. Assyria ceased to be an empire. Her people were enslaved. Babylon now ruled the world. It's just before 600 BC. Well, the Babylonians took a little bit different approach to empire control than Assyria. While Assyria employed mass population exchanges, the Babylonians simply leveled everything in sight. They sent the people away, and then they left the conquered land a vacant wilderness. King Josiah of Judah, who was so wise to bring his people back to God, he was killed in a senseless battle to try to stop the Egyptian army from marching through Judah on its way north to link up with the Assyrian forces. There appears to have been no intention on the part of the Egyptians to harm or to subjugate Judah. Rather, they simply intended to pass through on their way to do battle in Nineveh. But, since King Josiah wounded Egyptians... Egypt's army, a contingent of Egyptian troops was stationed in Judah. King Josiah was now replaced by Jehoiachim. But he was hand-picked by the Pharaoh. And so he was under the Pharaoh's control. One bright morning in 598 B.C., the residents of Jerusalem awake to find the Babylonian army taking up siege positions all around their holy city. King Jehoiakim was killed in battle, almost immediately. His son, Jehoiakim, assumed leadership. He instantly surrendered. Jehoiakim and all of his father's court, and about 10,000 scribes and teachers and priests and prophets, they were all hauled off to Babylon. His uncle, Zedekiah, was left in charge of Judah as a regional puppet governor for Babylon. He soon showed himself to be a very unwise leader. This would prove to be the first of three occasions on which the Babylonians would deport segments of the population of Judah to Babylon. Life for the Jews was never going to be the same again. And we'll continue with our saga next week.